0: That's how galaxies work as well right you have billions or trillions of stars right lots of variability different size colors luminosities uh intensities binary systems trinary systems etc all moving and colliding and what's at the heart of every galaxy is this dark star called a black hole they're all revolving around this one invariant thing and i think the global economy is the same thing. We have all of this variation of productive output and innovation and human interaction and collaboration and the cultivation and transmission of knowledge across space and time. But at the center of the whole thing that's driving it is money. And the ideal money is one that is invariant. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Again, that's Wolf, WolfNYC, W O
1: L F N Y C dot Robert, welcome back to the Bitcoin Matrix podcast. How are you?
0: I'm good, Cedric. Thank you for having me back.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to get into this. It's been, been about two years in the making. Wow. Yeah. That's been a long time. time you were twice. on episode 30, probably a little over two years ago, and we discussed uh, the tyranny of time, scarcity, the masters and slaves of money, and Bitcoin. Another very important piece, and you know I'm really excited to talk about this piece, uh, which I, what I consider you know a masterpiece alongside your others, because it's very important to me on my Bitcoin journey, mm. and it was important on two distinct levels. One, really understanding the difference between Bitcoin and and crypto or what we call altcoins mm. or shitcoins or whatever that is. But I think on a more profound level, because you use the analogy to zero there but just how important zero is and how important bitcoin is regardless of other things so you know i'm really excited to get into this piece and you know my first question for you is you know what inspired you to write it
0: yeah i think the introduction to the piece pretty well sums it up Hmm. i think one of the first points of friction you encounter when you're talking about Bitcoin or thinking about Bitcoin is, well, if it's just open source software and it's just language and it's just text, then anybody can copy and paste it and do whatever they want with it. Hence, we have 30,000 plus crypto slash shit coins. Then how does Bitcoin have scarcity? When you say it's 21 million and it's a fixed supply, what are you talking about? I can go copy paste it right now and make 22, 23, so on and so forth. And that is actually a difficult question to answer. Um, it it You have to understand that Bitcoin is not just a mechanical protocol, a software protocol, but there's also a social layer to it, right? As is true with any money, right? Money's mm-hmm people often describe money as a belief system, which I think is maybe a, a little bit of a stretch, but there is this component of social consensus that matters for money, right? We we can quite literally make different things money. We can monetize different assets uh, based on the, the collective social consensus we can create. Now that social consensus doesn't coalesce around just anything. You need to select an asset that satisfies very specific properties, but to answer your question, the reason I wrote this piece is to try and answer that particular question is what makes Bitcoin different than all these shit coins. And, you know, the direct answer would be, you'd be going into the concept of network effects. You'd be going into the concept of a first mover advantage. You'd be going into the concept of path dependence. None of these are easy topics, right? These are not these are not concepts that a layman will just grab onto. They're not very easy to analogize. Even if you try to go with network effects, let's say, because um, you have to get into the multi-sidedness of network effects. People will say, oh, well, there's network effects. Bitcoin has network effects, first mover advantage. That's why it won't be disrupted by a shit coin. And the most common example of network effects that people tend to grab onto is social network, social media. So they'll say, oh, well, Facebook disrupted MySpace, why not Ethereum disrupt Bitcoin? Something like that. So that's not, although it's part of the story, you have to get into the the multi-sidedness of the network effects is not an easy answer. Uh, same is true for first mover advantage. You could also cite the, the, the MySpace Facebook example. And then path dependence is just very tricky, very tricky to talk about. Roughly, you could say it means that history has inertia that once we get started down a particular pathway, you know, this could be politically, this could be technologically, that we have history has a certain inertia, right? So we have many different outlet types and standards throughout the world today. So when you try to plug in your computer in the US, well, it's not the same plug as you're gonna use in England, and it's not the same plug you're gonna use in the rest of Europe, so on and so forth. And that's because each one of those geographies had a different path-dependent emergence of their plug-in standards. So there's a path dependence component there. So, anyways, it's not the I say all that to just give you some inkling into how complicated of an answer it really is. What makes Bitcoin different than all these shit coins? And I was basically trying to find that analogy like where when else in human history have we had this major idea emerge that was singular it exhibited network effects it had a you know i guess a first mover advantage it disrupted other systems and i i I spent time thinking about it and I don't know how it came to me, to be honest. I think I got one of those flashes of insight. It was like, Oh, what about that? Cause I knew I barely knew a little bit about zero, but I knew the Hindu Arabic numeral system was a really big deal and started out competing everything else like the Roman numeral mm-hmm. system, et cetera. So I started to go down and go down that rabbit hole. It's like, okay, what's up with zero. And I discovered the two books that I really lean on in the piece, which are zero, the biography of a dangerous idea by Seif. He's Charles Seif. And then uh the book Finding Zero. I forgot the name of the second author, but he's cited in the piece. And they're just, man, really, really, really good books. I would say specifically, uh Zero the Biography of a Dangerous Idea is one of the best books I've ever read. Like it's really well written, goes through a really wide history. A lot of the images I use in the piece are from that book. And as far as I can tell, this is the best analogy that I could find of what it looks like when an unstoppable idea is introduced into the world. Um, it's, you know, at the end of the day, these are both, we're talking about mathematics and money. They both have this linguistic element to them, right? John Brevakey would call them psychotechnologies, Um this is especially true with like language and mathematics. It's a little bit different with money because money has this rooting in physical reality. But when you see a good idea introduced into the wild, people start to use the system that works best for them individually. And then you get this bottom up emergence, right? And today we just all take it for granted that, Oh, of course, zero is a number. Of course there's negative numbers. Of course there's imaginary numbers, etc. But none of that was, taken for granted were obvious pre-zero. I mean, it actually didn't exist pre-zero. And so you get these linguistic structures or this linguistic structure called mathematics being disrupted by the introduction of an absolute, right? The zero is like the centerpiece or the central component to the entire system. And I think you'll see a similar disruption in the linguistic tool of money. So we basically introduced or discovered, as I say in the piece, absolute scarcity, right? This is not a characteristic of an asset that was even possible prior to Bitcoin. There's You can't make a physical asset absolutely scarce because you can't prohibit someone from creating more of it at some point. It's only possible with a digital asset. And as far as I can tell, it's only possible once, like it's a one-time thing. So that was the motivation, and then I guess the other. Well, I did not see this piece going, but this is again largely thanks to Seif's book, uh, the biography of a Dangerous Idea. He went into how ideologically subversive this idea was, that the medieval church had built its entire power base on this finite universe metaphysics that you know there was an outer shell of stars that was the the ceiling basically and then the the macrocosmic atom and then at the micro scale we had the atom that was indivisible and you couldn't go below the atomic surface and that god was the prime mover that just moved all of that and the church was the center of the universe so the church had sovereignty and dominion in the world because they were literally the center of this finite universe well when you introduce zero you also imply the notion of infinity so this blew out the metaphysics of the church and the, and Seif goes into how this led to the fall of the medieval church as the dominant institutional paradigm and that was incredible was, oh wow so the you know just this little idea that was useful for merchants um you know discovered in meditation spread because it's useful for merchants spreads all over the world but implies infinity so it undermines the propagandistic power base of the church leading to its demise, um, maybe we're going to see something like that as well in the discovery of absolute scarcity with Bitcoin, right? We have this false church of modernity called the Fed or central banking. And the entire premise, right? It's another bullshit metaphysics, basically, right? You can print money to solve economic scarcity. You can print money to feed people. You can print money to put roofs over people's head, whatever it's not true. It's a fundamental falsity, just like the, the universe was not finite. Um, Well, who knows? I don't, maybe the universe is finite, maybe not, but the the atomic surface was not the bottom, right? And the, the, the sheath of stars was not the top. Maybe the discovery of Bitcoin or the invention of Bitcoin representing the discovery of absolute scarcity, we're going to have a similar disruption to the current dominant institutional paradigm which is central banking so i tried to draw parallels to that and um that was not a, a turn i expected the piece to take but sometimes when you're writing these things they just start to write themselves at some point you're like oh wow there's another parallel and let me tease that out so i hope that's a pretty good answer to your question
1: to get us started that's a fantastic answer and definitely a lot to unpack there uh that is my favorite turn in the piece and where i think it really levels up in you know, just the ideas we're unpacking here, uh, especially around the parallels between the church and the Fed, is, is astonishing mm-hmm. to me. And we talked about this on the last show, just the parallels between slavery and, uh, the, you know, the, the ramifications of the slave trade and the ramifications of inflation and money printing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and we definitely take the number zero for granted. What I like there, though, is that you mentioned that's a dangerous idea and that it out competed, you know, other ideas. And it makes me think, though, about the total addressable market cap of zero, <laughs> you know, what's yeah. Yeah, its impact. And so I, I would love to hear a little bit more about like how math and money are, are universal languages and what math was like around the, before zero was invented, because mm-hmm. um, we do take it for granted. We just learn about it in school today, you know, K through 12. We may start with zero or one, um, and yeah. it's not too profound at that point for us to kind of just talk about it we rattle it off like another integer or digit
0: yeah so i guess we could start with just and i I put this in the piece just trying to do calculation with roman numerals right like so basically there's a great book on this too that I, i haven't finished reading but it's very interesting it's called where math comes from i didn't read i didn't start to read this book until after i wrote this piece but it's a deeper dive into where math actually comes from. And like language itself, it is a metaphorical system. So it's a way in which we transfer our experience in one domain into the experience of another. So we're able to get like a a more descriptive account of reality um, in doing that. And so I guess you might say that what is most important, for mathematics initially right what gets it off the ground is that there's just these practical needs for people to count things right if it's if you're planting crops and you need to know the number of days until the next full moon if you are planning um trades right you're you're negotiating trades you are dealing with objects of any kind right you need to be able to count them categorize them you might be dealing with uh, you know, some of the earliest written records were tax records. So a lot of this all obviously pertains to accounting. How much income did you generate? How much is getting uh, extorted from you via taxation? All of these practical realities have to be dealt with, and they are best dealt with using mathematics, right? There's almost the only way to do it. And so one of the main applications of mathematics is arithmetic, right? addition subtraction multiplication division you need to do perform calculation on the things that the the numerals are representing right whether these are crops or bushels or you know tax accounting all of these things that you have to account for labor hours etc and so when you look at and again there's a depiction of this in the essay where i show what addition looks like using Roman numerals. Basically the summing together of the numbers 1223 and the numbers 1104, which if you could just imagine that in your mind, like, oh, that's very easy with the Hindu Arabic numeral system. You put 1223 on top, 1404 underneath, and you start adding from the right and you carry over if it goes into the tens place, right? You carry over to the next number and you keep adding and then you're done. Well, you need that that zero, like in the number 1104, there's a zero in the tens place, right? So there's a placeholder basically saying there's no value here, but there is a value in the hundreds place and the thousands place and then the ones place. So you can't do that type of mathematic, that simple, efficient form of arithmetic without zero as a category for nothing, basically in the tens place. So you run that same... (laughs) addition problem in Roman numerals, you get this whole huge thing where you have the letters MCCXXIII plus MCIV. I I won't read out the whole thing, but basically you have to expand the letters until you have common. Yeah, there's a snapshot of it there. You have to expand what each of these letters represent until you have common letters that you can then line up in columns and then you add them all together and then you recondense them to get the final number. So The point is arithmetic in Roman numerals is worse, slower, and more prone to error, which is the same thing as saying arithmetic in the Hindu-Arabic numeral system is better, faster, less prone to error. So if you're just talking about from a purely talking about mathematics, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, This is just the tool. The Hindu-Arabic numeral system was just a tool that provided greater utility than other numeral systems. So, okay, why does that matter? How is this an idea that's relevant? Well, mercantilism, right? Being a merchant, the buying and selling of things, trade. This is the force that interconnects the ancient world right you talk about something like the silk road it's often used as an analogy today as like the the phenomenon that connected the east and the west that even though the east and the west had very different languages very different philosophies religions etc there was still this through line that was economic exchange and this is the merchants that basically are dealing with one another, right, they're having to use accounting, they're having to negotiate, uh, calculate and execute trades, the merchants that adopt the best tool for the job, in this case, the Hindu Arabic numeral system are naturally going to generate more profits and make better use of their time, they're going to be more efficient at their job than those who adopt an inferior tool. So this idea of a zero based numeral system, you know, it starts in India, and it just starts to spread through trade. And so it goes east and it goes west. And the, you know, I guess the point that's really important here is that this is very much like a Darwinian natural selection process. This isn't an arbitrary decision of, oh, well, this one's, you know, better, faster, cheaper, so I'm going to choose to use this one. And maybe that if maybe I won't choose to use that and I'll just be the slower, dumber, more prone to error merchant. Well, that means over the long run, you're not going to be a merchant anymore, right? You're going to go out of business. You're going to lose to those that are uh, more competitive, right? They're more efficient. And so over time, those that adopt the best tool for the job survive and thrive, and those that fail to adopt it go extinct. And so after enough generations, you're left with a, a world. In which the hindu arabic numeral system is the standard and i guess that would be a good introduction to how you know why it's useful initially why mathematics are useful initially how they spread it's actually spreading through trade um but there are there are more implications of this which i get into later in the piece like the discovery of calculus which you know basically underpins every modern science today like there's not a modern science that doesn't in some way depend on calculus uh the discovery of negative numbers and imaginary numbers like once you get into the negative domain all of a sudden you say okay what's the square root of negative one well you get this weird number called i and like that doesn't what it's like on a whole different imaginary it's in another dimension basically sounds totally useless but it turns out wireless technologies digital technologies a lot of these depend on imaginary numbers like f- to to function so we we started to break into all these other domains or these uh, these other use cases and applications for mathematics that were not envisioned right with with people basically just using the Hindu-Arabic numeral system as a practically superior tool for trade it led to its spread, its proliferation, its ultimate standardization. And then you start getting into these other crazy mathematical domains that really usher in modernity proper, as we understand it. So gets you into the Enlightenment, um, and really just the scientific revolution. So I've, I hope that answered the original question. Um, and I guess you might say that Zero, basically the discovery or the invention of zero is one that totally overhauls the existing system, which is mathematics, right? You get a, you get a brand new form of mathematics, brand new forms of mathematics are made possible once you introduce zero. Now, it's, again, it doesn't succeed for those reasons. No one's like, oh, we need this because we're going to have imaginary numbers one day and we need cell phones. Like no one saw that coming. They just see, hey, better, faster, cheaper trade right here and now. And I think Bitcoin does something like that to the economic system, right? We it's just People are just going to adopt it out of practical necessity. It's like, hey, I'm a merchant. Um, to optimize my profit margin, I need to minimize my tax liabilities, I need to protect my purchasing power from inflation. I need to be able to vote with my feet in my wallet to go to the jurisdictions that treat me best. So I need a form of uh, a medium that preserves purchasing power, not only across time, but also lets me circumvent capital controls, go where I'm treated best, et cetera. This practical need for Bitcoin is why it's gonna be taken up and adopted. I would argue that's why it's being taken up today. But the long run implications of universal, incorruptible sound money standard, we have no idea, right? Like we've never had, we've never had, we've had little glimmers of it with gold standard here and there, but it always gets corrupted. Uh, you know, as soon as there's an economic crisis, the convertibility of gold tends to get cut off. So it's like the gold standard's never been allowed to actually operate. Mm. But even where we've had these little glimmers of a gold standard, we've had extreme cultural flourishing, innovation, you know, um, Safety goes into this in his book, The La Belle Epoque. We called it the Gilded Age in the West. Like we had these little moments in history where the gold standard was sort of working and we really saw human civilization like kick into high gear. What's it going to be like when we have this digital gold standard that no one can turn off? You know, I think we're going to discover the equivalent of economic imaginary numbers or economic calculus or whatever these things are, whatever these innovations that are going to come down the pipe. Um, I think they're extremely exciting for what just what we are, right? Like the the the, the humans that we have become as a result of just changing our mathematical system have been so mind blowing as we're doing we're proving right now by having a video teleconference, two different places in the world, this is all ones and zeros based technology. What types of innovations are we gonna have on a global sun money standard? It's all it's impossible to imagine, but exciting to think about. So um, I say that as just kind of a maybe like a tantalizing hope piece <laughs> for Bitcoin and its success.
1: Well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of hope there. And it's so, mu- so much of it is just grounded in mathematics. I mean, you mentioned the Silk Road and Bitcoin has had its own Silk Road in the past. And I think we're on that Silk Road, though, where we're still mm-hmm. merchants learning about this technology and how to use it in a way that uh, makes us less prone to error. Because I think a lot with with fiat, we we're just tremendously... Prone to error, like malinvestment, or even just our own individual calculations because of inflation yes. and, and the denominators moving, and it it, just, it sucks operating on that system, yes.
0: and it's very difficult. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers: thirty six thousand twenty five and one. Thirty six thousand is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system, with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send chamber encrypted messages, even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network-connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCointechnology.com today and use promo code Bitcoin23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet.
1: So, you know, we touched a little bit about uh, Zero's kind of store of value purpose. I would like to talk more about like the functions of Zero and maybe build on that because maybe we could talk about how Zero has like an, a medium of exchange sort of function, as well as store value and even unit of account.
0: Yeah, I'd like to first on what you just said. So error is very important here. And I, this goes to the, what I think is the most important. I consider this to be the unifying principle of civilization, which is private property. right? And it's not something I go into in this piece, but it's another way to conceive of Bitcoin as just the ultimate form of private property. And private property is properly understood as the, the bond between an owner and an asset, right? That an individual has the power to control, exclusively control and exclude others from using any particular asset that they themselves create or trade for. So it's it's premise on this idea that individuals own themselves and that we won't engage in coercion, right? We won't violate one another's self-ownership um, through coercion. When you don't have strong private property, you can't get accurate prices, right? So you get price distortion. This is through you out. If we print money, we're violating the private property of savers. This starts to distort prices and leads to what you just said, malinvestment or the misallocation of capital. And what that means specifically is that people doing the work in the world People solving problems for other people, Mar- you know, as consensual market actors, each of us has a certain configuration of plans and preferences that we would like the capital in the world to be allocated against. Like that, the idea, the plans and preferences we have. The misallocation of capital is when capital is allocated in a way other than that. And so you're not going to get when you basically the chain reaction here is you make private property weak or viable you get price distortion you're not the economy's not getting good inputs so then capital starts getting allocated in a way that's actually not consistent with the plans and preferences of market actors and you get fiat world right we have all this bullshit cheap toys you know labor market distortions booms and busts The state overgrowth ad infinitum, like all of these problems. And it all flows from that. just like, just respect private property, basically. So, um, and again, it's not something I went into in the piece, but I think it's important to state that something like Bitcoin, not something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is so indispensable to this entire thing of like creating a world that's sustainably peaceful, prosperous, um, basically like an economic democracy that is consistent with the plans and preferences of market actors. So I went into, and this is the second section of the piece called the functions of zero. And what I was trying to do here was basically analogize the different things zero does, but trying to draw comparisons with the different things that money does. And so the tr- the three functions of money are traditionally held out to be a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. So the example that I gave you earlier where you have this placeholder value or function of zero, right, where zero can represent nothing at a particular place, right? I gave you the number 1104. Well, there's a zero in the tens place, which says there's nothing in the tens place. So you get this category for nothingness that allows us to recycle our numeral system um, in a way that you can use less numerals to express more quantities. So there's an earlier example in the piece that's the Babylonian cuneiform systems, like a base 60. Instead of using a base 60 numeral system, you can use a base 10 with zero because you can keep recycling the numbers in new arrangements such that you can you can use less numerals to scale the numeral system more efficiently, basically. So you're using less pen strokes, less space. Um and it's all because zero can function as that, you know, quote unquote store of value basically at any particular um, order of magnitude. And so that's that might be a bit of a stretch of an analogy but i thought it was useful to kind of help people understand because obviously we're drawing comparisons between mathematics and money here i thought that was a good way to just help you understand the value of zero in that way that it's just holding the place it's not storing purchasing power across time obviously but it's holding the place of uh, where there is not a number but if you're performing arithmetic on it as we said earlier that there could be a number there, right? Like when you add 1104 to another number, it's like, well, you're adding something to zero. That was not possible with a non-zero based numeral system. So there's that example. Then the medium of exchange is interesting too, because you get, you know, before zero, there wasn't really the idea of nothing as a number, much less was there the idea of less than nothing as a number, right, negative numbers. So once you get the idea of zero, all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, what is zero minus two, right? Like it doesn't, obviously you could have said before, you said, well, what's one minus two. But if you don't have the idea that nothing is it's like, it's like a nonsensical answer, but all of a sudden when nothing is something, right? Nothing is a number. You're like, well, wait, it. well, if nothing is a number, can less than nothing be a number? And so you get this kind of gateway into the negative numbers. So I described zero as a medium of exchange, if you will, between the positive integer domain and the negative integer domain. It also, and I talk about this later in the piece, when I talk about the Riemann sphere, you have this weird relationship between zero and infinity. Um, and the Riemann sphere is like this mathematical structure, and you can basically s- turn zero into infinity in like one mathematical permutation. So you you get these weird, it's like this strange gateway number that can get you into d- different places that otherwise wouldn't exist absent a zero. So it sort of acts as a medium of exchange in that way. Again, it's not being used to facilitate interpersonal trade, but you're actually going through this portal, if you will, through zero into the negative numbers, into infinity, et cetera. And, you know, the, the very obvious example of this is just the number line, right? You get zero is the starting point of positive integer, integers one through infinity. And then you have a perfect mirroring of that going the other direction. So it's this it's a reflection of the positive integers cast across zero are the negative integers. And again, zero is like the surface of that reflection, something like that. Um, This is also, you know, very obviously useful in the in accounting, right? It was signifying debts, debits, and credits, and all of this. So it was important to that. And then finally, the the unit of account function, which in money is basically saying, we're using the money to express prices in terms of this money, right? We're, we're accounting for the, the value of other assets, liabilities, profits, losses, et cetera, in terms of this money. So you're having a common language of economic numeracy, Um, zero was very functional as a facilitator for fractions or ratios. So prior to zero, you had these long, I forget what they called these in Egypt. Um, I was looking for the word here. Um, they had these, they're, they're like, tables, long tables that uh, Egyptians used to use. This is pre zero to perform division, right? But all of a sudden when you get a z- they would, to deal with fractions basically, but when you get a zero based numeral system, you can just convert all those fractions into a decimal, right? So one half becomes 0.5, one quarter becomes 0.25, et cetera. So instead of trying to like move things, all, all these fractions onto a common denominator and then perform the calculation and then convert it back, You could just convert everything to zero based numerals and calculate that way. So it it basically was zero provided a numeral system that was better at handling ratios in the same way that the unit of account function of money is the best way to handle exchange ratios, which are prices. So those are the kind of three examples. They might be a bit tenuous, but they definitely helped me get my head around zero and, and what it did um, and I thought they were they were roughly analogous to the functions of money
1: I love that sort of uh, way of describing zero and the three functions and relating it to money and it, it gets a little bit more metaphysical and a little more philosophical in your piece though and I like how you you write zero is a symbol for emptiness which can be a highly useful quality as Lao Tzu said we shape clay into a pot but it's the it is the emptiness inside that holds whatever we want More philosophically, zero is emblematic of the void. As Axel describes it, the void is everywhere and it moves around. It can stand for one truth when you write a number a certain way. No tens, for example, and another kind of truth in another case, say when you have no thousands in a number. You go on to write, this is the reason we always prefer to see another zero at the end of our bank account or Bitcoin balance. I, I really like the clay pot analogy. And it makes me really think about how, you know, money or, you know, the the vessel of money the Mm -hmm. political currency unit is is sort of a a cup and it's the Mm -hmm. water that is the value that what goes in the cup yeah and 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 that's kind of the way i think about bitcoin in a lot of ways like the way we think about it as an arc Mm -hmm. you know it's going to absorb all or a black hole a monetary black hole Mm -hmm. so i i really like how zero relates and then you know you kind of get into infinity there which i think we'll touch on in a little bit what is the objective abstraction of with numbers I mean, and we talked a little bit about this before when we talked about like how we got into numbers with what is mm-hmm. one or I want to count things. But what, like, what, what, what is this idea of ob- objective abstraction?
0: Yeah. So what you just said there, um, and this is very interesting too. Again, I told I mentioned that book where math comes from. That math is like this metaphorical system. There's another book by one of those authors uh, titled "Metaphors We Live By." and it describes how language itself is a metaphorical structure. So metaphor means something like to transfer or to carry over. So again, it's the means by which we transfer experience in one domain into the experience of another domain. So what you just did there, you're invoking a container metaphor, right? Like, so we've got the a quote from Lao Tzu about the pot, right? That's an actual technology we created. The pot, the container, you pour the liquid or the, the solid in, and it contains what you need. The emptiness inside of the pot is where the utility lives. It's not so much the the structure, uh, although it's dependent on the structure. Uh, and when we talk about money, you know, obviously very difficult to define. As I've gone to great lengths on the show to to explore. But one of the definitions is that it it is a container for purchasing power, right? So it's something you pour your labor or your energy or your time into, and then you can pour it out when you spend it, right? To redeem labor, energy, and time from other people. So there's this very interesting relationship, I think, between the concept of metaphor Obviously metaphor is a core component to language, to mathematics, but I think it's also in many ways, money is metaphorical, right? We're, we're, we're transferring our experience of arithmetic, let's say, Mm. and we're importing it into the domain of human action, right? I'm going to go out and run a business all year. And at the end of the year, what do I have? I have a balance sheet. (laughs) And a profit and loss statement, and maybe a statement of cash flows, right? So I've taken all of this complex movement, right? Myself, my employees, my people, the blah, 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 blah. And then it all just gets distilled down into a few mathematical figures, right? So it's like a data compression tool. Mm. And really, that's what we're doing with language, right? Like we're trying to take this long, you know, typically experience, not always, it could also be self-reflection and logic. And we're trying to condense that into something that's communicable, um, something that we can put on paper or put into computer and, and transmit that knowledge across time. So there's this very interesting utility in language, in mathematics, in metaphor, in money that allows us to compress and transmit data over time. Um, that I think is just fascinating. And all and all you're doing is, again, you're carrying over experience one domain to another. So try to make that a little more concrete. When you say something like, the word understand even is metaphorical. It means to stand under something to gain a deeper perspective. So you're hmm. transferring your experience of like, say, standing underneath the car, right? You're getting, have you ever been to a, a maintenance shop and they have those little grooves built into the maintenance shop where they actually stand under the car and they look look at it from a deeper perspective to see what's going on to fix it you're transferring <laughs> your experience in that spatial domain of standing beneath something to understand it more deeply and you're transferring it into the conceptual domain of like oh do i understand quantum physics so and this this is almost intuitive if you think about it because like what else could it be like we are Creatures operating in physical space. Of course, we map physical things onto our language. Even when I say that, map onto, right? That's a surface metaphor. We're taking one domain and putting it on something else. Um, hmm. You know, you say things like "she ran in the race." Well, she wasn't in a race. The race is not a container. She participated in a race. Um, so it, it it's a funny thing to think about because. Metaphor becomes. You start listening that way. You listen to anyone talk about anything. It's pervasive. It's metaphors is pervasive and everything. So it's like it's a key component of communication, or messaging. I guess you might say. And that is the common thread between all these technologies. Is they are messaging systems, right? Language, mathematics, money. These are all messaging systems at the end of the day. And so, when you're asking about like a, I think your question question was, what are the objective
1: abstraction of numbers or with numbers yeah
0: yeah so this is a strange domain because and i left this one open in the piece because i don't know i still don't know the answer to this the question is are numbers first of all we distinguish between numbers and numerals right numbers would presumably be this latent quality of reality right there's this there's a there's something out there called oneness or twoness or threeness, if you will, and then numerals are the symbolic representations that we ascribe to those latent qualities of reality, right? One, two, three. Doesn't matter if you call it one, two, three, uno, dos, tres, right? It's whatever. It's it's just a symbolic representation of something that's actually out there. Now that matters because when you talk about zero, it's like, well, did we invent zero or did we discover zero? If zero is a latent quality of reality, then presumably we discovered it. And then we invented the numeral zero to represent it. So when I start talking about, and again, this is where, um, you know, I talk about the ancient Indian mathematician, Brahmagupta, and this might be an apocryphal tale, but it was said that he discovered this latent quality of reality in meditation. So this is shunya or shunyata, right? This this experience of the void, nothingness, timelessness, thoughtlessness, spacelessness. And if anyone that's ever really gotten deep into meditation, you've probably experienced this a time or two. Even if you've not done it in meditation, if you've ever, a lot of people that have been in like near death experiences, like you feel time slow down, you feel everything come to a crawl, um, or you've had some adrenaline inducing event. If you've ever done like performed or competed in a sport in front of a large audience or something like that, you've other people have reported these types of experiences, um, that you for me i've i've been there in meditation it is just a feeling of at-oneness with all things right like there's time doesn't seem to move you don't feel like you're in in a body you're just sort of connected to everything there's a blissful experience that a lot of meditators often describe and that is that is nirvana right that is the 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 Fundamental ground of being, which is paradoxically like a, non, a place of non being, void, nothingness, shunyata. That's where Brahmagupta said he discovered zero, basically. And so he needed to metaphorically transfer that experience back into the numeral system. So it's a mind blowing thing because if you did, if that's the case, then you basically discovered zero right you you experientially participated in this thing through meditation then you came back from meditation and sought to symbolically represent that experience in your metaphorical language system of mathematics and so zero sort initially it's just a dot it was like the dot that meant zero meant nothingness and what's mind-blowing to me about that is if someone, discovers that latent quality of reality just sitting still breathing doing nothing then you bring it back into a ling- linguistic system like mathematics and then it has all of these cascading consequences like we've talked about the Im- imaginary numbers calculus etc 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 what does that say right is it, what is that are we did you, did you discover or invent zero? I don't know. So when you talk about the objective qualities of it, it's like, I don't actually know. It's like, it sounds like this guy discovered an experience. You then represent it in a system, which is just a subjective thing, right? It doesn't matter if we call it zero, we call it T-Row, G-Row, as long as we all have a social consensus on what we mean when we say it, that's all that matters. And then we get all of these miraculous innovations, right? Uh, both mathematical and technological. Um, So, and and since writing this piece, I've gone further down this subject-object duality rabbit hole. And this is not in the piece, but I feel I should just mention it here. Um, There's another book by Hoppe, Economic Science and the Austrian Method. Short book, excellent piece. I think it's on page... 20 or thereabouts, he talks about how human action, which, you know, obviously Mises defines human action as the purposeful use of means in the pursuit of valued ends. So the reason Austrian economics is based on the axiom of action, which is man must act, is because. Cause, which is to say, man must purposefully use means to pursue ends. It, the reason that's axiomatic and irrefutable is because if you try to argue against that axiom and say, no, 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 humans, man does not need to act. What you are doing is using the means of argumentation to try and support the valued ends of refuting the axiom of action. So in your action, of trying to disprove the axiom of action, you are invoking the you are acting, you're performing an action. So Hoppe makes a point in this book that it is only through human action that mind and matter meet. Okay, so we all inherit this sort of cultural assumption, since, as a uh, said on the show, we are all Descartes' children, right? I think, therefore, I am we inherited this assumption that there is some fundamental schism between the subjective observer and the objective world. But there seems to me to actually be a continuum or a conformity between the two. I don't know where the subject ends and the object begins. And Hoppe, I just think, brilliantly spelled that out, saying that it is only through human action that mind and matter meet. So action itself... I think subject-object duality is a subcategory of human action, right? The Austrian economists say action is the primary category. Property is the second most important category, but I would think, I don't know if property or subject-object duality, I'm not sure which one's more important. I think most people in the world today think subjective and objective are real things, right? There's the objective world and the subjective world. These are just constructs. These are just categorical constructs that we make as acting humans to deal with and decomplexify the world there's not an actual line between these two things and so I, I i serve all that up because when you ask a question like about the objective nature right between is this an objective experiential shunyata thing that we or is this a subjectively created numeral system right that we call zero i don't know where do you draw the line right where do you draw the line then it's it's almost like we're we're always trapped in language in a way like you can't we're always acting right you can't not act so how how to get above that category i don't think you can and that's why i think even subject object duality is actually a subcategory of human action which is again the purposeful use of means in pursuit of valued ends so I um, hope that wasn't too much of a rabbit hole dive but since reading or since writing this i had read that book and um it's currently what I'm wrestling with on the subject object front.
1: Yeah, I mean that's I'm sure that's quite the battle too. And I, I like how you um you included the quote, quote, anything is true or not true, or both true and not true, or neither true nor not true. This is the Lord Buddha's teaching. And you go on to um quote, uh the Buddhist writer Thik Not Han describes it that the first door of liberation is emptiness, shinyata. Emptiness always means empty of something. Emptiness is the middle way between existent and non-existent. Reality goes beyond notions of being and non-being. True emptiness is called wondrous being because it goes beyond existence and non-existence. The concentration on emptiness is a way of staying in touch with life as it is, but it has to be practiced and not just talked about.
0: There it is, right? The emphasis on action again. I think that when they invoke the word emptiness here I think they're saying something like action it's empty of categories it's empty of mental construct right there is this primary reality that we are just we just are in the present moment we are these rational creatures that are online that is the first thing before there are any categories assigned to it it's emptiness right there's no subject object even and again the middle way between existent and non-existent um is this is action right you're just there there's nothing until we perceive there being something
1: right and you go on to uh right or as a buddhist monk of ancient watts temple in southeast asia described the meditative experience of the void when we meditate we count we close our eyes and are aware of only of where we are at in the moment and nothing else we count breathing in one and we count breathing out two and we go on this way when we stop counting that is the void the number zero The emptiness. You go on to write, empirically, today we now know that meditation benefits the brain in many ways. It seems to, that its contribution to the discovery of zero helped forge an idea that would forever benefit mankind's collective intelligence, a sort of software upgrade to our global hive mind. That's kind of really interesting, the way we all kind of get that upgrade, Mm -hmm. regardless of who made the discovery or how the discovery came about. And when I think about this void, though, you, you can't help to start thinking about infinity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and how, you know, I mean, I'd love to kind of hear a little bit more about how Zero brought infinity into play. And you touched upon it earlier. Like, I, I never really heard of this. What What is the Riemann sphere and its implications?
0: Yeah, so there's an image of this in the piece. Um, and so that number line that I mentioned earlier the imaginary numbers. So once you get into the negative domain, you have negative one, the square root of negative one is a number that can't exist. Right? Because two multiplying any two numbers by themselves can't be if you multiply two negatives by themselves, it's a positive. So you can't there is no square root to negative one. So what is the square root of negative one? Well, it's I it's an imaginary number. It's a number that exists on a plane or in a dimension that is not real, basically. And so this number line you see under the Riemann sphere is the real number line, and then the imaginary, there's the real axis and the imaginary axis. And uh, so <laughs> to get into the in depth mathematical description of this, I would encourage you to read the book. But basically, you get this structure in which zero and infinity are geometric reflections of one another. And they can transpose themselves in like a flash of mathematical permutation. So there's this strange three-dimensional sphere. And it's as you're forming calculation. And if you go up a little bit more on the piece too, it shows this rotational um, arithmetic, right? So as you're saying, when you do these uh, different equations here, like plus or minus x squared plus one equals zero. And then the only possible answers are positive square root negative one, which is i or negative square root of negative one, which is negative i or i cubed. You start rotating in this little real and imaginary axis of numbers. And if you keep doing these rotations, basically when you scale it up, you get this three-dimensional sphere. And at one, at one pole, the southern pole of that sphere is zero and the northern north pole of that sphere is infinity. And you have all these different um, calculation iterations that compose the sphere. So that's where, and I drew the parallel, you mentioned the the tetralemma earlier, right? Anything is either true or not true, both true and not true, neither true nor not true. This is the Lord Buddha's teaching. I thought that was such an interesting parallel to the possible answers of this rotational arithmetic where you're basically going from like a true answer on the real plane to not true on the imaginary plane to true again on the real plane, to not true. And it just keeps rotating. And so you end up with the Ryman sphere. And this is how zero basically implies the existence existence of infinity. Like zero implies negative numbers. Negative numbers imply imaginary numbers. Imaginary numbers imply the Ryman sphere. At the top of the Ryman sphere, you get infinity essentially. So it's like it proves infinity. It proves infinity exists, something like that. Like it's an actual number. And then that has serious implications um, for the church and the institutional paradigm of the time because infinity was not, you know, zero, both zero and infinity were not considered to exist. And uh, I think Charles Seif, who wrote Zero, the biography of a dangerous idea, he did a great job summarizing this which is an excerpt I cite in the piece, he said, zero and infinity always looked suspiciously alike. Multiply zero by anything and you get zero. Multiply infinity by anything and you get infinity. Dividing a number by zero yields infinity. Dividing a number by infinity yields zero. Adding zero to a number leaves it unchanged. Adding a number to infinity leaves infinity unchanged. So there's this fascinating connection <laughs> between these two extremes of mathematics, right? Either pure nothingness or pure everything, which is infinity.
1: Yeah. And you went on to write that some ancient Buddhist texts state, quote, the truly absolute and the truly free must be nothingness, end quote. In this sense, the invention of zero was special it can be considered the discovery of absolute nothingness a latent quality of reality that was not previously presupposed in philosophy or systems of knowledge like mathematics its discovery would prove to be emancipate to be an emancipating force for mankind and that zero is foundational to the mathematized software enabled reality of convenience we have it today yeah and then the piece goes on to talk about you know what happened uh, sort of you know the impact on the church and how it you know led to the fall of the church mm. And before we kind of get a little bit more into that, how was, you know, I'd like to maybe discuss how was zero how did zero impact culture, like art or music?
0: Yeah. So this and in the piece I go into a couple of things you, a lot of people have probably heard of, like the, the Fibonacci sequence or the golden ratio. Um this was like the ancient Greeks conceived of number as shape like almost the 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 same thing in many ways so the idea of zero this is why zero didn't exist as a number because you can't have a shape a shape of nothing right it doesn't make any sense um and so when you get zero you get things like the the one that really blew my mind was the vanishing point in art and i show a couple of the pieces um actual art pieces pre-zero and it's very two-dimensional lifeless unrealistic and yet post-zero you get this these pieces that have a vanishing point which if you've ever been in art class um it should like this piece that's actually this piece of artwork that's in the written piece shows where you put the point in the back really at the center back of the piece of artwork. And then you draw these lines that connect to it. So it's showing you like the the depth of your visual field. And then you draw objects based on that framework. So you have this point of infinite nothingness in the background, which is like, you know, when you look out on the horizon, there's a point that you can't see beyond. That's basically the vanishing point. And all of your perceived reality is oriented to that. So when we started to create art that was consistent with that visual representation of how we see, uh, you get very lifelike drawings. And so it's sort of an interesting example of how the ideas we inherit, they change not only how we're dealing with the world, right? As we mentioned with accounting and uh, you know things like that calculation etc but it's actually changing our cultural depictions of the world as well right it's actually changing art and so you see the idea start to infect every aspect of human existence um, there's also um there were these competitions between the algorist and the abacist right for the abacist for a long time were the fastest at calculation um where they, they could basically use the abacus to outcompete other people in calculation. But then all, along came the algorist who could use a, a zero based numeral system um, to outcompete the algorist, I'm sorry, the abacist. And so that was a, that was a change as well that we started to get, you know, this, this psycho technology was basically better than the physical technology of the abacus in, in, terms of performing calculation um for speed um so again before the hindu arabic numerals you had money counters that were using abacuses or counting boards to keep track of value flows but post that you get we get banks right we get double entry bookkeeping much later on Mm. so it really starts to change how we deal with with everything and um yeah, I, I guess I'd probably just leave it at that for now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, the, well, especially with the, the where art and the church met too, as you wrote, just as it does today, art had a strong influence on people's perceptions. Eventually, Nicholas of Cusa, a cardinal of the church, declared, terra non est centra mundi, which meant the earth is not the center of the universe. This declaration would later lead to Copernicus proving heliocentrism, the spark that ignited the Reformation later the Age of Enlightenment. You write, a dangerous heretical and revolutionary idea had been planted by zero in its visual incarnation, the vanishing point. At this point of infinite distance, the concept of zero was captured visually and space was made infinite. As Seif describes it, it was no coincidence that zero and infinity are linked in the vanishing point. Just as multiplying by zero causes the number line to collapse into a point, the vanishing point has caused most of the universe to sit in a tiny dot. This is a singularity, a concept that became very important later in the history of science. But at this early stage, mathematicians knew little more than the artists about the properties of zero. He went on to write, the purpose of the artist is to mythologize the present. This is evident in much of the consumerist trash art produced in our current fiat currency-fueled world. Renaissance artists who were often also mathematicians, true Renaissance men, worked assiduously in line with this purpose as the vanishing point became an increasingly popular element of art in lockstep with zero's proliferation across the world. Indeed, art accelerated the propulsion of zero across the mindscape of mankind. I want to go back now to the church and just maybe draw a parallel to the Fed and maybe if you could kind of expand on that parallel just in terms of the Fed's power today, and or maybe describe what the church's power was then, in terms of maybe not in whether the narrative is true or false, but controlling the narrative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just first on the part you just hit on art, you know, it, I've heard it said that Bitcoin needs its Hollywood moment, like to really get I think these big ideas they can only permeate human consciousness at a certain speed but what really accelerates that permeation is art right once the the idea is captured or embodied or depicted in art somehow the idea can spread much faster right I, and i don't know how this works exactly it's like is if we start making paintings that have a vanishing point does that just make the idea of zero more intuitive to people or is it vice versa? Like I'm not really sure which is which, but it definitely seems like when you study the the history, it's like once you got into this age of vanishing point art, like the idea of zero was spreading like wildfire. And I don't, you know, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, which was driving which. I'm not sure, but but uh, I guess this would be a call to arms for artists out there. It's like how do we capture the idea of Bitcoin in some artistic form and I you know there's obviously people out there that are doing this. Um you know fractal encrypt has those big beautiful mm. I don't know what you call them, right? They're just art work pieces of art, right? That it's kind of like the Bitcoin time chain in a visual format. Um more I think we need more artistic efforts like that to really try and accelerate the permeation of this idea into consciousness. And at some point you just hit escape velocity and the thing goes. And to get to your question about the, so parallels between the medieval church and the central bank, there's an interesting irony here I'd first like to highlight. And that is a lot of the power of the medieval church was premised on its monopoly over the production of books. So this was the dominant institution at a time when books were a luxury item. They're actually very expensive to produce, often leather bound, often, well, always copied by hand, basically. And so the church had a monopoly on the scriptorium where people would actually hand copy books, right? And this is how books were produced. So only those people of means could afford them. This put pretty serious limits on the spread of literacy and numeracy and self-education, right? People, books were not that accessible. So lacking this information technology, people were not able to become self-taught. You know, it's it's very difficult to, we take it for granted. Again, We something else we take for granted today, right? Books are cheap, plentiful. You can get them for the library for next to nothing, you can order them on Amazon, right? Like we have this access to information with the internet. It's just, we have a deluge of information. Whereas in this medieval church paradigm, people were starving for information, right? You couldn't, they couldn't even get books for instance. So it was the Gutenberg printing press, which was a composite innovation. Like all of the the components of it existed previously, and then Gutenberg assembled them in a very specific way that radically lowered the cost of printing books, and this created basically created a uh, made it much easier and much more economically viable for people to gain literacy, people to gain numeracy, people to read the Bible directly. Right. So you, you saw as the means of spreading the information technology of language spread, which were books, right? Books become cheaper, cost of books collapse. You saw a spread of literacy and numeracy. And this was kind of breaking the stranglehold that the medieval church had on knowledge, right? They, with that monopoly on book production, you kind of have a monopoly on knowledge itself. So you're controlling the narrative, right? They were literally accepting indulgences, right? Where people would pay to get themselves or loved ones into heaven or to get them out of purgatory. So the church was very exploitative at this time, very corrupt. And a lot of this corruption just centered on that that central power that it had, that monopoly power it had over knowledge itself through through book production.
1: Mm.
0: So the irony is that the Gutenberg printing press, which radically lowered the cost of books and contributed to the downfall of the church as the dominant institution in the world. is the same technology that gives rise to many centuries later, the central bank as the dominant institution of the world, because it's the printing press, right? You're printing mm. money. You're literally tricking people. Hey, put your gold on deposit. Here's a sheet of paper. You can use this sheet of paper to redeem it for gold at any time. Don't worry. This resolved the portability shortcomings of gold, right? So now you could transact with it much more uh, conveniently, let's say, much more economically. But because printing was so cheap, you could now start to overissue these symbolic representations of gold or silver, whatever they're representing. And that led to uh, you know credit expansions and bank runs and all of these other fractional reserve banking, all of this fraud um, that we basically... Had come up around the bank, so it's just I just wanted to draw out that irony. It's technology can be such a double-edged sword, right? Like it, it liberated the printing press, liberated humanity from the tyranny of the church to a large degree. Also, we go into the reasons why zero helped, um, but it later on you'd kind of feel the other edge of the sword where it contributed to the centralization of power inside of the central bank by making money more portable, basically through through the advent of currency. So, um, to talk about Zero's relationship, Hmm. it was, as I understand this, it was, again, this is an Aristotelian model of the universe. So, and I have a picture of this in the piece, and it was basically you have this finite universe as I described earlier where earth is at the center uh, and this was central to Greek philosophy which would become, this is again Aristotle's view, which would later become the Catholic church or the medieval church's uh, institutional dominion over the world. So as they're describe, they're proselytizing Christianity to people this is the metaphysics they're using to describe the universe, right? Like the world is made of atoms these tiny little billiard ball atoms you cannot go below the surface of the microscopic atom and then the universe is basically a macrocosmic atom right there's a sheet of stars um, i think they were conceived the stars were actually conceived to be holes in that sheet so it's like the light of god shining through or something like that but you couldn't go beyond it right it was just there was nothing beyond nothing below basically so there's no infinity no void and then god was the prime mover he was what caused the that that outer sheet to move which then propagated through through music right into the harmony of the spheres and everything below it moved like all the way down to our individual movements in space and time and the earth was the center of that world and the church was the dominant institution on that earth in that finite universe that was the the metaphysics that the church based its entire story on, right? So that was their narrative. Like we are the dominant institution, not only of this planet, but of this universe, because universe is finite. Earth is the center. So when the idea of zero starts to proliferate and it's spreading through trade, as I was describing earlier, when it reaches Europe, I think it was in the high middle ages, it met a lot of ideological resistance, that It was like, no, there can't be nothing as a number because, well, I'm a member of the church and the church has told me there is no nothing. There is no infinity, right? There is There are atoms and we're in the macrocosmic atom and the church is the dominant institution of the land. So the parallel for me, which I guess I said this at the top of the show, is just like, that is a narrative that's based on a false reality right? There is something, there are things smaller than atoms. There is, you know, it's not a sheet with holes punched in it, right? These are other stars. These are other galaxies, you know, that we've learned since developing tools and technologies that let us peer deeper into space, many of which were developed because we figured out zero and calculus and all of these other things. The parallel to central banking for me is that we have this institution in the world that is based on this false reality that you can print money to solve problems or resolve economic scarcity right there's a similar kind of hubris to it you might say right whereas the church the hubris of the church was we control the flows of knowledge this is the story this is how the universe works and we are the dominant institution in that entire narrative structure Well, the central bank is sort of the same, right? It's like, well, we humans can print money by fiat to solve problems. We are the organization that prints money by fiat, no one else. So we, although they're less maybe overt about this, it it serves the central bank to be more covert rather than overt because you don't want people to understand money if you want to have a monopoly on money. Whereas the church couldn't really afford to do that, right? You needed to overtly proselytize and convert people because you're you're basically beating them over the head and getting them to convert to your religion like that's how that was the control structure whereas in central banking it's more of a covert control structure right if you can print money and convince people that printing money is good for them and that you're fixing problems in the world through the printing of money it's to your benefit as a central banker that people don't understand how money actually works because that will unravel your your narrative basically so The parallel would be that we have an institutional paradigm premised on another false reality and the discovery or invention of an absolute undermines the entire thing, right? So zero implied infinity that undermined the metaphysical foundations of the church. Well, the metaphysical foundations of central banking are we can print money ad infinitum to solve problems, And Bitcoin is antithetical to that, right? It's like money that no one can print. And it actually solves problems. It actually preserves private property and purchasing power across time and allows the individual to implement their plans and preferences into the world in a way that's maximally resistant to coercion. So you're disrupting the central planning of money itself. And if money is the most, if not... I would say it is the most powerful narrative control structure in the world. Um, Maybe it's a toss up between money and religion. But I think if you can, as the old saying goes, give me the power to issue and control a nation's currency, I care not who makes its laws. I think the power to issue and control money is the most powerful tool in the world. And so to have the discovery of an absolute like Bitcoin undermine that control structure um i think it's a really interesting parallel it's a really interesting parallel and so to we had zero right as a symbolic representation of the void or nothingness another way you could describe bitcoin is money with 0% terminal inflation or really does the main thing about inflation is that the problem with it is that when it's unexpected and uneven Bitcoin, it's using inflation technically, supply inflation to bootstrap itself, but it's not unexpected and it's not uneven, right? We everyone knows exactly how much Bitcoin is being produced every 10 minutes from now until the year 2140, where the inflation rate of Bitcoin goes to actual 0%. It's also even in the sense that anyone that has access to energy or capital can enter the game. You can go and create a Bitcoin mining operation and compete to earn some of those inflationary proceeds. So it's not it's symmetric. It's not asymmetric. So I would say that zero is like a a symbolic tool for mapping onto the void that is somehow a part of reality. And Bitcoin is a money that maps onto that. And that it's, again, the only fixed supply asset that I think human beings are capable of creating. So it's a money with 0% terminal inflation. And we only get one of those, so far as I can tell. And I go into later in the piece, reasons why. I don't think you can introduce another one. And that's where we get into those more complex topics like path
1: dependence. Right. Yeah, I mean, completely fascinating piece here and and metaphor. I, I think, though, the more we talk, I think about how Bitcoin's relationship to infinity. And, and I think you said it, you know, how Bitcoin is a call option on, you know, mankind's uh, production of future value. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I think about Bitcoin as this infinite thing. And mm-hmm. and and the great nothingness or the you know the void in this huge mm-hmm. bucket or, mm-hmm. and and you know I I think a lot about um, we talked you know with the printing press and and the way the church controlled the dissemination of ideas. I wonder how much the Fed is fighting this in 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 what I think of as the modern printing press or the internet, mm-hmm. and how much they're actually not just fighting it economically but via any sort of messaging, you know, not acknowledging the new vanishing point because of Bitcoin or the the infiniteness of it, or just not, or fighting all of those newness things through other ideological battles around economics and how much they're in those playing fields. One of my highest
0: health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double blind, placebo controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating Lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash today to sign up.
1: I want to read a little bit, you know, from what you included in, in your piece. So uh, you have this quote from Danzig. In the history of culture, the discovery of zero will always stand out as one of the greatest single achievements of the human race. You go on to write, an infinite universe meant there were at least a vast multitude of planets, many of which likely had their own populations and churches. Earth was no longer the center of the universe, so why should the church have universal dominion? In a grand ideological shift that foreshadowed the invention of Bitcoin centuries later, zero became the idea that, broke the church's grip on humanity, just as absolute scarcity of money is breaking the Fed stranglehold on the world today. In an echo of history, us moderns can once again hear the discovery of nothing beginning to change everything. Zero was the smooth stone slung into the face of Goliath, a death stroke to the dominion of the church, felled by an unstoppable idea. This oppressive institution's fall from grace would make way for the rise of the nation-state, the dominant institutional model in modernity. You go on to, uh, quote, Pierre Simon Laplace, uh, quote, zero is a profound and important idea which appears so simple to us now that we ignore its true merit. But its very simplicity and the great ease with which it lent to all computations put our, our arithmetic in the first rank of useful inventions. As Alfred North Whitehead said, the point about zero is that we do not need to use it in the operations of daily life. No one goes out to buy zero fish. It is, in a way, the most civilized of all the cardinals, and its use is only forced on us by the needs of cultivated modes of thought. And you know, in one of the pieces, you talk about how no one, you know, wants to catch zero fish, or no one goes to the market, and you almost use it as like a a, 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 a refutation. So someone's like, uh, zero exists," and someone's like, "You can't buy zero apples," <laughs> and and that was very uh, important to me. Just how simple that was in logic trying to understand people who weren't willing to understand bitcoin or give Mm it its opportunity to be understood that it's kind of normal in this situation to get that kind of reputation and and uh to it just kind of put a different spin on it and 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 gave me some patience uh you know but also some some wisdom into what we're facing here and it's hard to grasp these things so I, I just want to thank you for this conversation. It's been so dope. My final question for you then is: you know, do you think we're going through a great awakening?
0: Well, I certainly hope so. Um, and as you probably gather from reading some of this or listening to the podcast, I I, I take a complex systems view on the world. I guess I. I got into some very interesting authors at a young age, like, um, James Gleek, who wrote the book chaos and the information. Um, I read some authors like Brian Green that were big in astrophysics, Stephen Hawking, et cetera. So I think most things in reality are most adequately described through a complex systems lens. Um, terminology that's often used to describe complex systems are stocks and flows. There's also variance and invariance. And so what I see in mathematics is you have this system of optimal variability, right? It's it's the most descriptive linguistic system or highest resolution linguistic system we have for describing reality. Right. Mathematics is so mind-blowing and its potential, right? We we mathematically ascertain that black holes exist 50 or 70 years before we empirically observe one. Right. So we can Einstein can theoretically, operating through mathematics and his own self-reflection, determine that this dark star exists in the heart of galaxies before we're ever able to actually develop the the equipment that can observe the stars rotating around the center of the galaxy. You can't directly observe a black hole, but you can see how quickly stars are spinning around the heart and you can back into the, uh, the observation of, of a black hole existing. So it's like this extremely powerful structure that lets us describe reality in a way that is, is mind blowing, right? It's beyond our own senses even. And Central to that entire language is this absolute, this centerpiece, right? This fulcrum of the whole thing is this absolute unchangeable thing called zero. right? It's the center of gravity for the the, the entire system of of wide variation and, and adaptability we call mathematics. So at the heart of the mathematical system that is, again, highly variable, uh, extreme, and its potential for variation, you have this zero that's totally invariant, right? It's like the the fixed center to this massive dynamic language system. And what, what I just described, black holes, that's how, all gal- we're talking about complex systems, that's how galaxies work as well, right? You have billions or trillions of stars, right? Lots of variability, different size, colors, luminosities, uh, intensities, binary systems, trinary systems, et cetera, all moving and colliding. And what's at the heart of every galaxy is this dark star called a black hole. They're all revolving around this one invariant thing. So you have all this variation centered on invariance. And I think the global economy is the same thing, right? You, we have all of this variation of productive output and innovation and human interaction collaboration. And the, the cultivation and transmission of knowledge across space and time, but at the center of the whole thing that's driving it is money, right? Money is what drives the whole thing. And the ideal money is one that is invariant, right? The, the more invariant the money, the more variant the, the, the quantity and quality of capital and goods we produce, this is what gold was. Again, gold was the most invariant monetary substrate we ever had. Bitcoin perfects invariance, right? It's twenty-one million. It's a fixed supply, so it's going to enable, I think, the the highest and greatest quantity and quality of output we've ever had in terms of goods and services. And so that's very, very exciting, right? It's 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 like another one of those in a way. So you start to look at complex systems, and you have these. Constellations of invariance centered, I'm sorry, constellations of variance centered on invariance. And I think Bitcoin is is like another one of those. Another way to say this, right? There's uh, there's the old saying that complex rules engender simple outcomes, simple rules engender complex outcomes. So if you've ever seen uh, a flock of starlings, these are the birds that move in what what are called murmurations. So they move as like they're one collective organism, right? They're these giant amorphous kind of nebulous uh, swarm creatures that are moving as one unit. And for the longest time, we didn't understand like how, how do they know how to do that? Like, that's incredible. They move as one, but they're obviously individual birds with individual brains and nervous systems. Hmm. And as it turns out, each one of those little birds is just following a very simple algorithm. It's like, Something like do whatever the bird in front of you did, and keep two feet away from all other birds on each side. And by all of them running this very simple rule set, you get this super complex emergent behavior. It's incredible, right? So again, you get the more invariant the rule structure, the more variability you get in the the behavior, the emergent the emergent action, something like that. Uh, Cicero said, "The more laws, the less justice." And I think Uh Bitcoin is just this universal law, right? We just get this very, again, this ancient idea of private property that each person keeps what they earn, right? It's like the implementation of justice itself. If justice is people getting what they deserve, well, private property is people keeping what they earn. Bitcoin is the asset that is most difficult to separate from its owner in human history. So it's like an implementation of justice. It's an implementation of simple rules. It's an implementation of perfect invariance. And on top of that, that zero if like quality, we can build this huge constellation of complexity and capital and civilization. And um, yeah, you know, law, I think it's important to remember private property is superordinate to law. The reason we have the rule of law is to resolve disputes over resources. So it's like when people's property bumps up against each other and they're fighting over a thing, we resort to the rule of law. So the, the entirety of the rule of law grounds out in private property. And so we're talking about with Bitcoin, the most superior form of private property that's ever been introduced, right? This is It's closest to the ancient ideal, which was inviolable private property. And so that's a really, really, really big deal. And um, I think it stands to change everything. It changes all of our institutional realities. It changes the way we see the world. It changes economic calculation. It changes the profitability of violence and coercion in a good way, right? It makes it less profitable to be violent or coercive, which would lower our time preference, make us more civilized. Uh, you know, just totally be a step, I would say more of a massive leap forward in human civilization, possibly even the beginning of civilization proper. And again, all of this sounds totally radical and wild, but I'm not here to sell any of this as if it's gospel, but I would encourage people to just study Bitcoin and study the history and nature of money and see what you find. This is been a depiction of my journey going into the rabbit hole and ways and analogies and historical instances I've used to sort of you know iron out my thinking about all of this many other people have gone down many different paths but somehow we all seem to end up at the same conclusion and it is bitcoin is like the most significant innovation of our lifetimes probably of the last 500 years possibly ever right it's on par with fire, the wheel, electricity, it's a major or zero, right? It's a major, major step change in, in human civilization. So I hope, you know, a lot of people have said they really enjoyed this piece. I loved writing it. I hope to see more people. We mentioned the artist earlier. I hope to see more artists embracing Bitcoin and trying to give it its Hollywood moment, because I do think, if we really want to see this idea accelerate in its permeation of global consciousness, it needs more artistic. It needs <clears> to be more artistically energized. Let's just say that. So, um yeah, thank you. And I'm, I always love talking about this piece. Well, thank,
1: thank you. you. I'm going to read a little bit more just to round it out. Uh, When I think about the culture, though, I wonder if it needs, you know, Maybe instead of its Hollywood moment, maybe it needs a Detroit or Motown moment or its Bronx (laughs) moment with hip-hop or just something a little bit more emergent than Hollywood. Uh, But definitely its cultural moment. Yeah, actually,
0: hip-hop, that's a good point. Hip-hop, because hip-hop has such a strong grip on the money narrative, I think, in the minds of a lot of people. Like, It's one of the most popular musical mediums in the world. They obviously talk a lot about money, but I'd like to hear some more Bitcoin hip-hop, a little less fiat hip-hop. So maybe that's the right artistic approach to this.
1: Yeah, just people speaking about it. So you go on to write, Bitcoin is a global economic singularity, the ultimate monetary center of gravity, an exponential devourer of liquid value in the world economy, the epitome of time and the zero point of money. In time, Bitcoin will prove itself as the most important network in the global economic system by increasing social scalability, causing an inversion of economic power, converting culture into a realignment with natural law. Central planning... In the market for money, a.k.a. monetary socialism, is dying. This tyrannical financial hierarchy has increased worldwide wealth disparities, funded perpetual warfare, and plundered entire commonwealths to bail out failing institutions. A reversion to the free market for money is the only way to heal the devastation it has wrought over the past 100 years. You included a meme. Anyone who has ever opened a history book in their life, please, (laughs) sweet baby Jesus, do anything to fix this economic crisis other than print more fucking money. I am fucking begging you, the government. Haha, ha, money printer go burr. The zero hour. How much longer will monetary socialism remain an extant economic model? Inflation rate and societal well-being are inversely related. The more reliably value can be stored across time, the more trust can be cultivated among market participants. When a money's roots to economic reality are severed, as happened when the peg to gold was broken and fiat currency was born, its supply inevitably trends towards infinity, Hyperinflation and the functioning of its underlying society deteriorates towards zero, in parentheses, economic collapse. An unstoppable free market alternative, Bitcoin, is anchored to economic reality through proof-of-work energy expenditure and has an inflation rate predestined for zero, meaning that a society operating on Bitcoin standard would stand to gain in virtually infinite ways. When Bitcoin's inflation rate finally reaches zero in the mid-22nd century, the measure of its soundness as a store of value will become infinite. People that realize this and adopt it early will benefit disproportionately from the resultant mass wealth transfer. Zero and infinity are reciprocal. In the same way a society's well-being shrinks towards zero, the more closely the inflation rate approaches infinity through the hyperinflation of currency conversely societal well-being can in theory be expanded towards infinity the more closely the inflation rate approaches zero through the absolute scarcity of bitcoin remember the fed is now doing whatever it takes to make sure there is infinite cash in the banking system meaning that its value will eventually fall to zero bitcoin is the zeroth principle of money bitcoin is shattering the siege of central banks on our financial sovereignty it is invoking a new movement the separation of money and state, as its revolutionary banner, and it is restoring natural law in a world ravaged by a mega wealth parasite, the Fed. Only unstoppable ideas can break otherwise immovable institutions. Zero brought the church to its knees and Bitcoin is bringing the false church of the Fed into the sunlight of its long-awaited judgment day. Both zero and Bitcoin are emblematic of the void, a realm of pure potentiality from which all things spring forth into being. The nothingness from which everything effervesces and into which all possibility finally collapses. Zero and Bitcoin are unstoppable ideas gifted to mankind, gestures made in the spirit of something for nothing. In a world run by central banks with zero accountability, a cabal that uses the specious prospects of infinite cash to promise us everything. Nothingness may prove to be the greatest gift we could ever receive. Thank you, Brahma Gupta and Satoshi Nakamoto for your generosity. Everything is nothing, zero, with a twist, infinity. It makes me think that nothing could be anything and anything could be everything. So we have so much potential, especially on a Bitcoin system. Robert, this has been incredibly dope. Thank you so much for your time. I'll leave it to you for any parting words. You know, let people know where they can find you and your work.
0: No, well, thank you, Cedric. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I think you're doing great work, so keep spreading the message. Uh, you can find me at whatismoneypodcast.com or on Twitter at BreedLove22. Thank you so much.